Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This show is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. To get a free audio book of your choice, log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to for details. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audio book. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral's Lights, show number 101. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, welcome to, we have reached past that 100 show and we are ploughing on, show 101, fantastic, how good is that? So, little, what's going on in the show today, little introduction by myself again about the anthology I have, there it, there it is, she's in my hands, little talk about the book. Give you some little figures, What's how many sold, what's happened with that book. We have a little, which is fascinating to be quite honest, we have a fact article by Larry Santuru. Well, it's more, it's a, a progress report on how Larry's building up this story. You know, this is the one that goes with the cover. We've got that, which is just fantastic. And we have an amazing story by Spider Robinson. There you go, do look out for that. So, 
editorial. Yes, we ha- I have in my hands a copy of this book, Starship Sofas, Starship, Starship Sofas Stories, Volume One. And in a way, I think me and I think we've me and Dave getting away with something. You know what I mean? We took a chance, to be quite honest. And I was a little bit worried about it because we had to get it all done for sure. One hundred, you know, and. On our part, we we could achieve that. Do you know what I mean? That was you know a, a doable thing. You know, as you listened to kind of last week's show, it was you know there were some kind of stresses along the way, but we got there. But it was all kind of left to Lulu. Do you know what I mean? You, you know, your, your thing's got to be printed, then it's got to be like sent away and checked and everything like that. And it was just not going to happen where it was going to get printed, sent off, and then I okayed it ready for show 100. So we kind of, in a way, took a chance. Do you know what I mean? It was just the only thing we had to do. And my copy came first. I think I've had my copy about three, four days there now. And, you know, so that's the kind of time span. Do you know what I mean? It, it does take a few days for printing. And when I got it, you know, I was kind of... I seen a cover and the cover on this, you know, I've got the deluxe edition and I've actually got the the first, the very first one. Do you know what I mean? This is it. This here. And I think Dee said there's a couple of like little proofreading edits that he had to clear up before this one got sent out. So I don't know if this one, sorry, after this one got sent out, he had to clear up a little couple of proof edits. So I think this one is, is, is an, an original, a, new, a unique original, should I say. So when I got this, you know, and I seen the cover, like I say, the cover, fantastic. But then I was so like, hmm, what's inside? You know what I mean? And the my biggest fear was page numbers would be all out of sync because that's been something that has been happening with the the old kind of proofs. You know, it's you kind of do all your mistakes, but then it for some reason it knocks the page counts out, and unbeknown to us, you know, we put out for a proof reading and it comes back your pages numbers are not coinciding. So I checked them, and yes. And Dee's just getting his copy. And, you know, and if it's passing Dee's kind of quality control, you know what I mean? He does this kind of for a living. You know, and he's got the copy there and he's quite happy with it. You know, so, and i just seen Larry on the, actually the forums has got his copy and loves it once more. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased, to be quite honest. Now, I've had a lot of emails, or a number of emails, should I say, about a hardback edition. Now, <laughs> You don't know what kind of beast you're letting out. Do you know what I mean when you kind of when you start this project, and things have just went from, you know, just it's quite amazing how it's happened. So, and I think, you know, what I mean? so there's been a number of these emails. You know, is there a hardback Tony? Is there a hardback? I'd rather have a hardback if you don't mind. Do you know what I mean? So, and picture D. Do you know what I mean? I think there's you know like the. Um, Inspector Cluzo, and he's like he's police con- uh, chief inspector. You know, you can just imagine D is like the chief inspector. You know, Cluzo's left the house. You know, I've asked for a, a number of kind of copies of this, and D's kind of oh, cool, wet grass, cool, wet grass. No more, no, more, no more revisions, no more edits. Cool, wet grass, cool, wet grass. You can do it, D. You can do it. And then I'm all of a sudden up on the email. D, we need we need a hardback. Cover. Can we do that? Can we sort that out, Dee? It's like, oh! So, guess what? There is going to be a hardback version coming. It'll take... 
I don't know, about a week or something like that, we, we actually need to see this cover because Dee says he wants to see this cover to make sure everything, you know, because you, you have that kind of wraparound cover, I think. So we're going to wait and hold off until actually Dee sees it and then, then release it. And I'm thinking it's going to be priced at actually the, the normal kind of seventeen ninety nine bracket, you know, like a hardback book. So that is that one, which I'm quite, you know, quite chuffed to bits about. What else? Well, sales number, I'm trying to, off the top of my head, the last time I looked. And I think it's been good, but it's, it could be better. Do you know, it could be better. There has been around about 16 of the little paperbacks. That's the kind of 899 ones. And that actually is on blurb. It's a, it's a different side because, I don't know if I mentioned this the last time, but the last minute, we kind of got it all up and running. Yeah, the postage for the paperback was more than the actual deluxe edition of the book. Do you know, for some reason, I don't know what it was, this A5, you know, or that little kind of digest size was just a ridiculous price. I think it might have been printed in America and it had to come over here. I, I don't know. So we had to kind of quickly go to another company, blurb.com, and do it there. There's been 16 copies sold there. And there has been, with the Deluxe, there's actually been a better take-up on that. There's been, a, the last time I looked, which was this morning, there has been 31 sold of this. Now, out of nearly 5,000 listeners, that's, that's not that many. You know, <laughs> please support me. You know, support the show. It's everyone who's been involved in a great thing. Please, you know what I mean? It's, it's a great idea. Support it. And like I say, I you know, times are bad, so I'm not gonna. I don't want to be pushing it too much. I just think, don't miss the chance. You know what I mean? I've got like this cover, this book in my hands there now, and this is like the, the the first one, and it is a remarkable thing. I am chuffed to bits. And when you get a look inside, you know the kind of the old vintage ads, the artwork and everything like that. Do you know what I mean? I'm actually bloody proud of that. So that is the state of play with the book. There will be a hardback book coming out. Please look out for that. If you want, you know, if you want to save your kind of pennies for that one, please, by all means. I don't think actually postage is a, a problem there as well. We're trying to look into it ahead now. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of experienced users with this Lulu thing. And mine, Lulu seems a bit of a strange setup as well. For some reason, you know, and it's actually it's a big corporation and, you know, they'll have bugs and everything. If you went on to Lulu for some reason now, typed in Starship Sofa, there's nothing there. Search there, search has kind of crashed and burned for the, for some reason. We've just found out over the last couple of days. But if you go to the, our website, go on to the, you know, the, the kind of Starship Sofa anthologies, there's an icon there, go from the main site to the, the new Super Duper site that Josh has created. Buy the book that way, and it just takes you to our page. You know, we're actually there, but for some reason there, Lulu page, the search pages don't work. So if you went straight to Lulu... You probably wouldn't find one, but if you come straight to Starship Sova and go in that direction, which I hope you do, like I say, show Josh's um, website, that would be that would be amazing. Please get yourselves a copy of this book. So we're going to go on to Larry's progress report now. Now, you know the, the idea is Larry's seen a story and he's going to write a copy for it, and what we're going to do is going to put this copy in one book and sell it for £200. Well, straight away, I would have to say that book is now sold and gone. There you go. And then, and then that's, you know, I've had to kind of wrestle with that, you know, selling it straight away and not getting everyone a chance. But 
I had to, to be quite honest, I know this sounds a bit crass, and I had to take the money and run. Do you know what I mean? It might not have sold anybody else. I don't know. Trust us, trust us, trust us when I say the guy who it's going to, do you know what I mean? It's He's had some hellish bad times and dealings, his family throughout his life with cancer. Do you know what I mean? It's when they like, you couldn't honestly have picked a better place for it to go to. And I'm so proud to kind of do this like this and know that it's gone there and it's going to go to a, you know, a great home. So it's gone. There you go. But I think, you know, listening to kind of Larry next and his progress report, do you know what I mean? Even I was saying Larry wanted actually for me to, to cut this up into sections. You know, if you listen to it, he's done it in sections, you know, like day report, this is this. I'm not going to, you know, sorry, Larry, I'm not going to. It's a, it's nearly 20 minutes long, his progress report, but it just shows the torment that writers go through, do you know what I mean? Which is, I was saying to Larry, it's just pure, pure pleasure for audio listening, listening to the Larry struggle on here, do you know what I mean? So think of, you know, and all I can say to Larry is, ah, I'm so... I, I kind of describe the words he's put, what he's doing to kind of get the story out, to get some little bit of money, you know what I mean, to kind of spy that. It's just an amazing thing, Larry. Like, listen to the progress report and you'll understand the kind of torment and hell the guy's going through. Larry, over to you. Okay, this is progress report number two, and... I'm a little calmer at this one, calmer anyway, when I sent that first progress report. Um, I have no idea what I'll be like when I finish this or when I actually finish recording this for sending. I had planned to do it before Monday, but here it is Monday morning, and I'm in the office at City Hall. I'm in my office, and I've got the door closed. I've got a little gap here, so I'm hoping to get some of it done. I began this on Wednesday last and from here on, I'll report as per my notes done at the time. Uh, this is the uh, progress report on the story I'm writing that will be using Skeet's illustration for Starship Sofa Stories as a kickoff point. Um, I'll probably record on the fly again and probably use the headset microphone again. That's what I'm doing. And I think, except for my gasping and heavy breathing the last time, it worked out all right, didn't it, Tony? Uh, I think I'll do that rather than use the nice recording mic at home because, well, because I like being a little loosey-goosey with the saying of these reports. And when I set up the good mic, I get all nervous and, and, and performery and uh, sound like I've got to stick up my ass. Anyway, having done what I consider a piss-poor job of it the last time, I want to backtrack a little bit, checking my notes here. First, I mentioned that I don't like to talk about something I'm writing while I'm writing it, because doing that makes me suddenly feel like I'm rather defending the thing that rather than explaining it or teasing. But that's me, and it's no one's fault. Another thing, I'm prone to self-editing early in the process. It's not editing like correcting typos, cutting out the crap writing from the piece, but editing in the sense of having my gut tell me that this whole thing is crap and whoever told you you could write, you're a fraud, you putz you. Anyway, I, I can't even let the fair Cecilia read what I've done until it's in a really happy place in my head. So these notes will be a progress report in name only. I think I've said that. 
Here's a second point, uh, as a point I meant to make in the first outing uh, of these Notes from America. What a pompous ass that makes me sound. Notes from America. That was Charles Dickens, I think. Uh, Letters from America. That was Alistair Cook during World War II. Uh, if we've forgotten, Alistair Cook was a kind of cross-cultural exchange student. We got him. You got Edward R. Murrow. And oh, to digress uh, even further, uh, Mr. Cook as the host of the old CBS program, Omnibus, and that was early in the history of broadcast television, uh, the which I loved when I was a tot. Mr. Cook, with his wit, his urbane ways, his knowing smile, his delightfully different way of talking, that British accent, yum, he was my hero. Yes, at ten years, Alistair Cook was my Joe DiMaggio, my Minnie Minosa, my Joe Lewis, my Michael Jordan, for you later generations, my... Well, he was my Alistair Cook. My father, of course, made fun of him. Alistair Cookie, he called him, probably because of that very non-American E that dangled from the K of his cook. And for his highbrow show, Omnibus, and its literary and artistic fussings on that utterly lowbrow, self-consciously middle-class, black-and-white hissy box of ours, the TV. Omnibus? What's that mean, I'd ask? I don't know. It's a bus, I guess. Gripes, look it up. And I did, and cripes, it was a bus. Then, aha, it's also something that carries something, a large number of other somethings. It's reprints, collections of things. Ah, omnibus. So, look, stop me if I subcategorize again, Tony. Uh, my second point here is that I haven't written a science fiction story since I was in the seventh grade. That's a long time ago. Not the pure stuff, anyway, the stuff of John W. Campbell, the stuff Campbell would have bought for astounding science fiction. Uh, and by the way, that was the father of analog and way back when. As a matter of fact, John W. Campbell did not buy my seventh grade offering called Return to Home, which was a Richard Marston-inspired thing. Uh, Campbell had a chance to, but he didn't take it. The less said about that, the better. See, now I have to resist the temptation to tell you about that thing, that story, and I, I will, I promise, I will resist. Okay, since the seventh grade, I've written a few things that verge on SF, most recently, uh, So Many Tiny Mouths. That's almost science fiction. It's got extraterrestrials, it's about creatures that take over the world at the silicon level, and... Well, some of you probably heard it here on Starship Sofa. Others may have read it when it was published in Feral Fiction, now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. And if you haven't read it or heard it, you can do so now. Just go to the uh, the archives on uh, Starship. Uh, I have another science fiction story called A Very Bad Day that was published in an anthology called Tales from the Pet Shop. Really, that's really what it was called. Uh, Bad Day was another end-of-the-world thing. Ah, did I mention, by the way, Return to Home, that thing I'm not going to tell you about, was also an end-of-the-world thing. Huh. Well, I, I was a Catholic kid. My best friend when I was a back-alley boy in this, uh, back then was a Seventh-day Adventist who seemed always to be waiting for the end of the world. So Meld hanging out with that kind of kid with native Catholic guilt, and there you got it. A writer with a penchant for ending the world. Anyway, 
my fear lingers. I'm known, if I'm known at all, as a writer of horror, or at its closest approach to science fiction, a writer of contemporary fantasy. Ah, so okay. My story, some stages along the road toward our failure to reach the moon, that was also uh, here on the starship way back in the 40s of the Oral Delights, that was fiction, and it was about science. It was sort of about science. It was about kids wanting to build and, and fly the first rocket to the moon. It was along the lines of Einlein's rocket ship Galileo, if I may give myself airs. Uh, kids in my story don't succeed. Neil Armstrong does. And the Vietnam War does happen. So, here I am, charged with writing an old-fashioned pulp science fiction story upon which a book will hang. And I think to myself, what the hell am I doing here? And here's another part of why I don't like to talk about specifics while I am writing. You may have noticed I frequently provide a making-of audio feature with stories that are podcast on the Starship. Um, <clears throat> sometimes these pieces are about the writing. Uh, with Little Girl Down the Way, the audio extra was about the real little dead girl who actually had lived and died just down the alley from my apartment in Chicago. With so many tiny mouths, I think I spoke of where the initial impulse to do the thing came from, being asked to submit to an anthology of tales about things that eat each other or fangs or claws. It's, it's a silly fucking idea for a book, but there you have it. That Fetchin's piece included a little bit about my relationship to the place in which I chose to set the story, the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. I don't know. I I feel resistant to talking about where the ideas come from while the ideas are still coming. It's sort of like showing the audience how you're going to do a magic trick before you actually do it. Actually, before you actually figure out how to do it. So, to know that the initial impulse for this story comes, yes, yes, from Skeet's illustration, great thing that it is, and that one of the central characters derived from an old science fiction movie, and that the central conceit for the thing comes out of a scene in a British TV miniseries, well, all that sounds kind of cheap, doesn't it? does. It is. So, at this point in the process, I've wrested all the characters and the situation fully away from that old movie, that old TV show, and they are mine own now. Thank you very much, mine and Skeet's. Thank you, Skeet. So, without giving away any of the tale, which I am afraid, no, no, I'm, which, which I am really embarrassed to do, I'll say that today, uh, which was last week sometime, I did another several hundred words, I bungled forth into a new section, and am almost a quarter of the way, uh, well, well over 2,000 words, through the story. The piece is becoming uh, interesting to me now. Maybe it's becoming too interesting to me now, it being one of those things whose words and the richness of its words uh, I'm coming to cherish too much, too much. That's enough for now. I've got some things to do here at work. I'll be back in a bit. Well, uh, I'm back. The bit in which I came back was last Thursday. That's the 17th of September. And I'm still in the middle of the workday here at the hall. And uh, on that Thursday, 
still working at the hall, I managed to squeeze in another 700 words. And I'm just about at 2,700 words right now, uh, back then. And that puts us about a third of the way through the story. The section bungled forth into at that time was roughed out and a new area of things have been breached. We're nearing the end of Act One. Our band of happy and miserable heroes is en route to their next appointed stop, which will, wonder of wonders, set the stage for Act Two of this little drama and set up the situation finally pictured in Skeet's lovely image for the Starship Sofa stories that will be in Act Three. I gotta say, I hate mentioning word counts. I... I Never think about them when I'm just writing, but we've got a sort of goal here. That's rare. Mostly I'm charged with staying within a word count. It's under 5,000 words, something like that. Tony suggested this should go about 8,000. I'm thinking it's going to be more like 10, so there it is. I am now at 2,697 words, exactly. And that was Thursday. Okay, uh, this is now Friday afternoon. That's about 3.15 when I ended writing and began taking these notes, and I took off work that day just because. Uh, one of the reasons was that I was really excited about getting some more work done on this thing. It's now got a tentative title. Here it is. It's now going to be called, so far, Lord Dickens's... See, I can't even say it. Lord Dickens's Declaration. And as of this moment, I put down another 700 plus words to make it a total of 3,447 words total. Lord Dickens's Declaration. Here's the personal crisis of the day. I realized at that point that I had built a story that I am not sure I can read aloud. I'd love to. I really, really would love to. I'm becoming quite fond of my horribly flawed central character, and I'd love to voice him, but I'm just not sure I can. See, the way I've written him, the, the way I hear him as I tap him onto the screen is with an accent that I'm lousy at, okay? Funny thing is, the original old movie character that I mentioned I based this guy on was a Scot, at which accent I'm really lousy at. Anything I do with a Scots accent would come off like a bad Jimmy Doohan Star Trek, the original series imitation. So, while my inability to do Scots is not why my central guy segued into a Yorkshireman, I, I just don't want to change him. His fetchins are of absolutely no material matter to the story. I, I don't think so, at any rate. Not so far, at any rate. Or should I say, any road... Anyway, I made him that way, and that's how I want him. I guess guess I'll just have to go watch the Royal Shakespeare Company production of Nicholas Nickleby and listen to Ian McNeese's Wackford Squeers or Alan Armstrong's Yorkshire Schoolmaster Squeers. Anyway, that was the crisis of the day, and I will talk to you tomorrow. And then tomorrow it became. Uh, again, going here to my notes following that day. I say that I'm at the end of the writing day, almost 800 words today, and I am at a bad point in the arc. See, 
I begin, as I think I've said, to rethink myself, to question the whole process. And at some point in the writing of anything, I begin to think back on it all. And I say to myself, this is crap. Whoever told you that, you know, etc. At that point, I begin each writing session by reading over what I've done, reworking, fussing over it. I improve, that's in quotes, things that in retrospect are probably pretty decent as they had been. I start emphasizing things that I think might be important without really knowing if they are important. Sometimes the writing teacher in me kicks in and kicks me in the ass and gets me to stop fucking around. Just finish the damn thing it tells me, then go back, then agonize. So anyway, I started that way that morning. Uh, Cecilia and I woke early. We read to each other. We biked down to the farmer's market in Lincoln Park near the zoo. Had some wonderful crepes stuffed with all manner of fresh veggie things and cheese stuff. Then I came back, and still sweaty, stinky from the ride, I went to work. Reading, fussing, hating everything, pulling bits apart, adding to, shifting around, reading aloud, trying out Yorkshire accents. Oh, I am awful, truly, honestly awful at them. Then I got a note from Tony, and I went back to work and stopped writing horizontally, as Cecilia calls it when I fuss. And I went back to adding a few more vertical floors to this thing, Lord Dickens's declaration. So that's it for today, Saturday. Sunday. Sunday, September 20. Sunday was good. Um, I had some urges to scribble during the night. That happens sometimes. And I scribbled. I, I keep a little notepad next to the bed just to annoy Cecilia and took a few notes that kind of popped into my head as I was lying there uh, trying to get to sleep. Upon putting foot to the floor on Sunday morning, I scooted over to the computer and while Cecilia got herself ready, we were planning on going out for breakfast to a really lovely little diner down the street from us. Uh, so I made her wait and... Uh, in a fairly quick time, I, I put another few hundred words into the computer, and more important, I think I found a better place and a better way to begin the story. Having done that, that opened things up further for me, and when I finally got finished with uh, the morning's breakfast and so forth, I got to work. Uh, the thing just sort of breezed on, and I got nearly a thousand words in in, in a fairly short time. Uh, we're now up to just over 5,000 words, and Tony, I'm afraid to say, it looks like the final tally is going to be somewhere more like 12,000 words. Uh, unless I find a way to do things with a little more economy. I, I usually can do that, but then... Figuring, of course, that I've been economical, I end up adding more stuff, so it's a wash. Anyway, on the way to work this morning down to the loop on the bus, I read the first scenes. I was rather pleased, dare I say. As a reader, one innocent of all knowledge of this thing, I found myself interested in the people, the situation, the world they're living in, and in a weird kind of way. I found that this is a place I'd not mind living in myself. Well, not so far, anyway. But things will change. 
they will indeed. And until sometime down the road, this is Larry Santoro bungling forth. Hey, ghoul. Do you know what? <laughs> you mean... <laughs> What can I say? That is, like I say, Larry, you know, bonded it in sections and, you know what I mean, and played through different times and, uh, nah, played it all at once, Larry, and it gives you, it gives us, you know, the kind of, the listeners, just a, a glimpse into, you know, your kind of, your mind and your workings, you know, like every, any writer probably has this angst to kind of grind through to get a story out, and, do you know what I mean, what on earth? Do you want to do that for? Why be a writer? You know, there must be someone, you know, I've heard Elizabeth Bear, you know, can just kind of put out, you know, writes like the wind and puts out these award-winning stories. You know what I mean? These are special people. Then you've got the likes of like Ted Chang, which just kind of, it, you know what I mean? It's just, God, get it out and done. And then like Larry's going through the same, you know what I mean? Even like down the kind of Larry's side, like, like right the way through, then change the beginning again, and like wrestle that bit out, and then start again, and just it just seems like it's all one big mixy snowball, sticky goo. He can't get his cell to the end because he keeps looking back, and I can't find there, and he just sees daylight, and then what? I'll change that, and oh, honestly, so. There you go. It's going to a good cause. I was Larry said, and this is like kind of one of the kind of real angsts with it. Larry said, "Can I have a book?" <laughs> and you know, I, oh, Larry, there's only one. You know what I mean, I, if there was going to be any book, I would have it. <laughs> Greedy boy, top of the tree, he always has the the biggest bit of cake, but. There's only going to be one printed copy of that book. So there you go. And it's sold. But it's it's going to a great cause. Do you know what I mean? What can I say? So this show is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to be downloaded and listened anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So please log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for details. I've got to, like, I've got to. I just want like to pick a little kind of, I always like to pick a little recommendation because I get feedback from, you know, from you about the kind of the books I've picked and on Audible. And... We've ran a couple of stories by this writer. He's called Alan Steele. And I've never kind of, I've known these kind of books are out there called Coyote and Coyote Horizon. I forget the other one there. But I know there's three, and there's been kind of two spin off books from that, and there's been some short stories. One of the short stories I've actually got, and it's narrated, and I'm frightened to listen to it because it's in advance. It's after what's happened. But I, on a whim, downloaded Alan Steele's Coyote, and I'm just lost in total science fiction goodness. You know what I mean? What a great cracking story. It's set, and I don't want to give too much away, because actually, because I haven't even gotten to the end of it yet, I'm probably about halfway through this first one. America's kind of all mixed up, and has kind of got this kind of, not like, say, dictatorship, 
state, but it, it's getting that way. And they've pumped a lot of money into building this kind of example, like a spaceship to kind of show how good we are. And it's going to fly to the stars and, you know, but, but to get that spaceship built, it's caused poverty on no end. And, you know, like America is now kind of slipping into, kind of, you know, over a third of the population, I think like even more is, you know, kind of lower level poverty. And it's the story of this ship and it's the story of the crew and it's the story of detainees, what they're calling them over there, who actually steal a ship and fly off, you know, and it's, it's all kind of put to sleep for 250 years. There's all that mixed into it. There's different planets, there's aliens. Oh, it's just awesome. Do you know what I mean? I'm loving it. I'm just, you know, them stories that you get where as soon as you listen, you somehow kind of latch on and, you know, you're just there, you know, character development and everything like that. You don't think about that. You just, you latch on and you just follow it through. And that's what I've done with Alan Steele's Coyote. It is a great, great story. It is a fantastic narration. Make that your book of the week. Let us play a bit of Spider Robinson. This story is Spider's... Well, I got this story of Spider, and he's played it on his site, you know, and it's been probably played around the internet. But I just, on this day, I wanted to play it, do you know what I mean? Just because this is why we're doing this, do you know what I mean? This is why kind of Larry's putting himself through hell and torment, and this is why there's one copy, and this is why someone has bought that one copy. You know what I mean? It's just to kind of realise some people are going through kind of nasty bits of hell, you know, and it's coming up close at Christmas, and what a time to be kind of just dealing with these issues, you know, horrible. But this story won Larry, um, Larry. <laughs> this story won Larry a Hugo. Hey, <laughs> let us hope, Larry, let us hope. But this story is Melancholy Elephants, and actually when I got it off Spider, he says he doesn't know why he won a, you know, a Hugo, it's just two people talking, you know, that, that was actually what he said about it. So I'm going to leave you in the master of narration as well. Spider Robinson and Melancholy Elephants. Melancholy Elephants, copyright 1982 by Spider Robinson. This story is dedicated to Virginia Heinlein. She sat Zazen, concentrating on not concentrating until it was time to prepare for the appointment. Sitting seemed to produce the usual serenity, put everything in perspective. Her hand did not tremble as she applied her makeup. Tranquil features looked back at her from the mirror. She was mildly surprised, in fact, at just how calm she was, until she got out of the hotel elevator at the garage level and the mugger made his play. She killed him instead of disabling him, which was obviously not a measured, balanced action. The official fuss and paperwork could make her late. Annoyed at herself, she stuffed the corpse under a shiny new Westinghouse rotable whose owner she knew to be in Luna, and continued on to her own car. This would have to be squared later, and it would cost. No help for it, she fought to regain at least a semblance of tranquility as her car emerged from the garage and turned north. Nothing must interfere with this meeting, or with her role in it. Dozens of man-years and God knows how many dollars, she thought, funneling down to perhaps a half-hour of conversation. All the effort, all the hope. Insignificant on the scale of the great wheel, of course, but when you balance it all on a half-hour of talk, it's like balancing a stereo cartridge on a needlepoint. It only takes a gram or so of weight to wear out a piece of diamond. I must be... 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Harder than diamond. Rather than clear a window and watch Washington, D.C. roll by beneath her car, she turned on the television. She absorbed and integrated the news on the chance that there might be some late-breaking item she could turn to her advantage in the conversation to come. None developed. Shortly the car addressed her. Grounding, ma'am. ID eyeball request. When the car landed, she cleared and then opened her window, presented her pass and ID to a Marine in dress blues, and was cleared at once. At the Marine's direction, she reopaked the window and surrendered control of her car to the house computer, and when the car parked itself and powered down, she got out without haste. A man she knew was waiting to meet her, smiling. Dorothy, it's good to see you again. Hello, Philip. Good of you to meet me. You look lovely this evening. You're too kind. She did not chafe at the meaningless pleasantries. She needed Phil's support, or she might. But she did reflect on how many, many sentences have been worn smooth with use, rendered meaningless by centuries of repetition. It was by no means a new thought. If you'll come with me, he'll see you at once. Thank you, Philip. She wanted to ask what the old man's mood was, but knew it would put Phil in an impossible position. I rather think your luck is good. The old man seems to be in excellent spirits tonight. She smiled her thanks, and decided that if and when Phil got around to making his pass, she would accept him. The corridors through which he led her then were broad and high and long. The building dated back to a time of cheap power. Even in Washington... Few others would have dared to live in such an energy-wasteful environment. The extremely spare decor reinforced the impression created by the place's dimensions. Bare space from carpet to ceiling, broken approximately every forty meters by some exquisitely simple objet d'art of at least a megabox value appropriately displayed. An unadorned, perfect white porcelain bowl over a thousand years old on a rough cherrywood pedestal. An arresting color photograph of a snow-covered country road, silk-screened onto stretched silver foil, the time of day changed as one walked past it. 
a crystal globe a meter in diameter, within which danced a hologram of the immortal Shara Drummond. Since she had ceased performing before the advent of hollow technology, this had to be an expensive computer reconstruction. A small, sealed, glassite chamber containing the first vacuum sculpture ever made, Nakagawa's legendary starstone. A visitor in no hurry could study an object at leisure, then walk quite a distance in undistracted contemplation before encountering another. A visitor in a hurry like Dorothy would not quite encounter peripherally astonishing stimuli often enough to get the trick of filtering them out. Each tugged at her attention, intruded on her thoughts. They were distracting both intrinsically and as a reminder of the measure of their owner's wealth. To approach this man in his own home, whether at leisure or in haste, was to be humbled. She knew the effect was intentional and could not transcend it. This irritated her, which irritated her. She struggled for detachment. At the end of the seemingly endless corridors was an elevator. Philip handed her into it, punched a floor button without giving her a chance to see which one, and stepped back into the doorway. Good luck, Dorothy. Thank you, Philip. Any topics to be sure and avoid? Well, don't bring up hemorrhoids. I didn't know one could. He smiled. Are we still on for lunch Thursday? Unless you'd rather make it dinner. One eyebrow lifted. And breakfast? She appeared to consider it. Brunch, she decided. He half bowed and stepped back. The elevator door closed, and she forgot Philip's existence. Sentient beings are innumerable. I vow to save them all. The deluding passions are limitless. I vow to extinguish them all. The truth is limitless. I... The elevator door opened again, truncating the vow of the Bodhisattva. She had not felt the elevator stop, yet she knew that she must have descended at least a hundred meters. She left the elevator. The room was larger than she had expected. Nevertheless, the big powered chair dominated it easily. The chair also seemed to dominate, at least visually, its occupant. A misleading impression, as he dominated all this massive home, everything in it, and to a great degree the country in which it stood. But he did not look like much. A scent symphony was in progress, the cinnamon passage of Bulachevsky's Childhood. It happened to be one of her personal favorites, and this encouraged her. Hello, Senator. Hello, Mrs. Martin. Welcome to my home. Forgive me for not rising. Of course. It was most gracious of you to receive me. It is my pleasure and privilege. A man my age appreciates a chance to spend time with a woman as beautiful and intelligent as yourself. Senator, how soon do we start talking to each other? He raised that part of his face which had once held an eyebrow. We haven't said anything yet that is true. You do not stand because you cannot. Your gracious reception cost me three carefully hoarded favors and a good deal of folding cash, more than the going rate you are seeing me reluctantly. You have at least eight mistresses that I know of, each of whom makes me look like a dull matron. I concealed a warm corpse on the way here because I dared not be late. My time is short and my business urgent. Can we begin? She held her breath and prayed silently. Everything she had been able to learn about the senator told her that this was the correct way to approach him. But was it? The mummy-like face fissured into a broad grin. Right away. Mrs. Martin, I like you, and that's the truth. My time is short, too. What do you want of me? Don't you know? I can make an excellent guess. I hate guessing. I am heavily and publicly committed to the defeat of S-4217896. Oh, yes, but for all I know, you might have come here to sell out. Oh. She tried not to show her surprise. What makes you think that possible? 
Your organization is large and well-financed and fairly efficient, Mrs. Martin, and there's something about it I don't understand. What is that? Your objective. Your arguments are weak and implausible, and whenever this is pointed out to one of you, you simply keep on pushing. Many times I've seen people take a position without apparent logic to it, but I've always been able to see the logic if I kept on looking hard enough. But as I see it, S-896 would work to the clear and lasting advantage of the group you claim to represent, the artists. There's too much intelligence in your organization to square with your goals, so I have to wonder what you are working for and why. One possibility is that you're willing to roll over on this copyright thing in exchange for whatever it is that you really want. Follow me? Senator, I am working on behalf of all artists, and in a broader sense he looked pained, or rather, more pained, for all mankind. Oh, my God, Mrs. Martin, really, now. I know you have heard that countless times and probably said it as often. He grinned evilly. Well, this is one of those rare times when it happens to be true. I believe that if S-896 does pass, our species will suffer significant trauma. He raised a skeletal hand, tugged at his lower lip. Now that I have ascertained where you stand, I believe I can save you a good deal of money. By concluding this audience and seeing that the squeeze you paid for half an hour of my time is refunded, pro rata. Her heart sank, but she kept her voice even. Without even hearing the hidden logic behind our arguments? It would be pointless and cruel to make you go into your spiel, ma'am. You see, I cannot help you. She wanted to cry out and savagely refused herself permission. "'Control!' whispered a part of her mind, while another part shouted that a man such as this did not lightly use the words, "'I cannot.' But he had to be wrong. Perhaps the sentence was only a bargaining gambit. No sign of the internal conflict showed. Her voice was calm and measured. "'Sir, I have not come here to lobby. I simply wanted to inform you personally that our organization intends to make a no-strings campaign donation in the amount of—' "'Mrs. Martin, please, before you commit yourself, I repeat—' I cannot help you, regardless of the sum offered. Sir, it is substantial. I'm sure, nonetheless, it is insufficient. She knew she should not ask. Senator, why? He frowned, a frightening sight. Look, she said, the desperation almost showing through now. Keep the pro rata if it buys me an answer. Until I'm convinced that my mission is utterly hopeless, I must not abandon it. Answering me is the quickest way to get me out of your office. Your scanners have watched me quite thoroughly. You know I'm not abscamming you. Still frowning, he nodded. Very well. I cannot accept your campaign donation because I have already accepted one from another source. Her very worst secret fear was realized. He had already taken money from the other side. The one thing any politician must do, no matter how powerful, is stay bought. It was all over. All her panic and tension vanished, to be replaced by a sadness so great and so pervasive that for a moment she thought it might literally stop her heart. Too late! Oh, my darling, I was too late. She realized bleakly that there were too many people in her life, too many responsibilities and entanglements. It would be at least a month before she could honorably suicide. You are right, Mrs. Martin, the old man was saying, sharp concern in his voice. She gathered discipline around her like a familiar cloak. Yes, sir, thank you. Thank you for speaking plainly. 
She stood up and smoothed her skirt. And for your— Mrs. Martin, for your gracious— Yes? Will you tell me your arguments? Why shouldn't I support 896? She blinked sharply. You just said it would be pointless and cruel. If I held out the slightest hope, yes, it would be. If you'd rather not waste your time, I will not compel you. But I am curious. Intellectual curiosity? He seemed to sit up a little straighter. Surely an illusion, for a prosthetic spine is not motile. Mrs. Martin, I happen to be committed to a course of action. That does not mean I don't care whether the action is good or bad. Oh, she thought for a moment. If I convince you, you will not thank me. I know. I saw the look on your face a moment ago, and it reminded me of a night many years ago. The night my mother died. If you've got a sadness that big, and I can take on a part of it, I should try. Sit down. She sat. Now tell me, what's so damned awful about extending copyright to meet the realities of modern life? Customarily, I tried to listen to both sides before accepting a campaign donation, but this seemed so open and shut, so straightforward. Senator, that bill is a short-term boon to some artists, and a long-term disaster for all artists, on earth and off. In the long run, Mr. President, he began, quoting Keynes, we are some of us still alive, she finished softly and pointedly. Aren't we? You put your finger on part of the problem. What is this disaster you speak of? he asked. The worst psychic trauma the race has yet suffered. He studied her carefully and frowned again. Such a possibility is not even hinted at in your literature or materials. To do so would precipitate the trauma. At present, only a handful of people know, even in my organization. I'm telling you because you asked, and because I am certain that you are the only person recording this conversation. I'm betting that you will wipe the tape. He blinked and sucked at the memory of his teeth. My, my, he said mildly. Let me get comfortable. He had the chair recline sharply and massage his lower limbs. She saw that he could still watch her by overhead mirror if he chose. His eyes were closed. All right, go ahead. She needed no time to choose her words. Do you know how old Art is, Senator? As old as man, I suppose. In fact, it may be part of the definition. Good answer, she said. Remember that. But for all present-day intents and purposes, you might as well say that Art is a little over 15,600 years old. That's the age of the oldest surviving artwork, the cave paintings at Lescaux. Doubtless the cave painters sang and danced and even told stories, but those arts left no record more durable than the memory of a man. Perhaps it was the storytellers who next learned how to preserve their art. Countless more generations would pass before a workable method of musical notation was devised and standardized. Dancers only learned in the last few centuries how to leave even the most rudimentary record of their art. The racial memory of our species has been getting longer since Lescaux. The biggest single improvement came with the invention of writing. Our memory span went from a few generations to as many as the Bible has been around. But it took a massive effort to sustain a memory that long. It was difficult to hand-copy manuscripts faster than barbarians, plagues, or other natural disasters could destroy them. The obvious solution was the printing press, to make and disseminate so many copies of a manuscript or artwork that some would survive any catastrophe. But with the printing press, a new idea was born. Art was suddenly mass-marketable, 
and there was money in it. Writers decided that they should own the right to copy their work. The notion of copyright was waiting to be born. Then in the last hundred and fifty years came the largest quantum jumps in human racial memory. Recording technologies, visual, photography, film, video, Xerox, hollow, audio, lo-fi, hi-fi, stereo, digital, then computers, the ultimate in information storage. Each of these technologies generated new art forms and new ways of preserving the ancient art forms, and each required a reassessment of the idea of copyright. You know the system we have now, unchanged since the mid-twentieth century. Copyright ceases to exist fifty years after the death of the copyright holder. But the size of the human race has increased drastically since the 1900s, and so has the average human lifespan. Most people in developed nations now expect to live to be 120. You yourself are considerably older, and so, naturally, S-896 now seeks to extend copyright into perpetuity. Well, the senator interrupted, what is wrong with that? Should a man's work cease to be his simply because he is neglected to keep on breathing? "'Mrs. Martin, you yourself will be wealthy all your life if that bill passes. "'Do you truly wish to give away your late husband's genius?' "'She winced in spite of herself. "'Forgive my bluntness, but that is what I understand least about your position. "'Senator, if I try to hoard the fruits of my husband's genius, I may cripple my race. "'Don't you see what perpetual copyright implies? "'It is perpetual racial memory.' "'That bill will give the human race an elephant's memory. "'Have you ever seen a cheerful elephant?' "'He was silent for a time. "'Then, I'm still not sure I understand the problem.' "'Don't feel bad, sir. "'The problem has been directly under the nose of all of us "'for at least eighty years, and hardly anyone has noticed. "'Why is that?' Well, I think it comes down to a kind of innate failure of mathematical intuition, common to most humans. We tend to confuse any sufficiently high number with infinity. Well, anything above ten to the eighty-fifth might as well be infinity. Beg pardon? No, sorry, I should not have interrupted. That is the current best guess for the number of atoms in the universe. Go on. She struggled to get back on the rails. Well, it takes a lot less than that to equal infinity in most minds. For millions of years we looked at the ocean and said, That is infinite. It will accept our garbage and waste forever. We looked at the sky and said, That is infinite. It will hold an infinite amount of smoke. We liked the idea of infinity. A problem with infinity is easily solved. How long can you pollute a planet infinitely large? Easy. Forever. Stop thinking. Then one day there are so many of us that the planet no longer seems infinitely large. So we go elsewhere. There are infinite resources in the rest of the solar system, aren't there? I think you are one of the few people alive wise enough to realize that there are not infinite resources in the solar system and sophisticated enough to have included that awareness in your plans. The senator now looked troubled. He sipped something from a straw. Relate all this to your problem. Do you remember a case from about 80 years ago involving the song My Sweet Lord by George Harrison? Remember it. I did research on it. My firm won. Your firm convinced the court that Harrison had gotten the tune for that song from a song called He's So Fine, written over ten years earlier. Shortly thereafter, Yoko Ono was accused of stealing You're My Angel from the classic Macon Whoopi, written more than thirty years earlier. Chuck Berry's estate eventually took John Lennon's estate to court over Come Together. Then in the late eighties, the great plagiarism plague really got started in the courts. 
From then on, it was open season on popular composers, and still is. But it really hit the fan at the turn of the century when Brindle's ring song was shown to be, quote, substantially similar, unquote, to one of Corelli's concertos. There are 88 notes. 176 if your ear is good enough to pick out quarter tones. Add in rests and so forth, different time signatures. Pick a figure for maximum number of notes a melody can contain. I do not know the figure for the maximum possible number of melodies, too many variables, but I am sure it is quite high. I am certain that it is not infinity. For one thing, a great many of those possible arrays of 88 notes will not be perceived as music, as melody, by the human ear. Perhaps more than half. They will not be hummable, whistleable, listenable. Some will be actively unpleasant to hear. Another large fraction will be so similar to each other as to be effectively identical. If you change three notes of the Moonlight Sonata, you have not created something new. I do not know the figure for the maximum number of discreetly appreciable melodies, and again I am certain it is quite high, and again I am certain that it is not infinity. There are sixteen billion of us alive, Senator, more than all the people that have ever lived. Thanks to our technology, better than half of us have no meaningful work to do. Fifty-four percent of our population is entered on the tax rolls as artists. Because the synthesizer is so cheap and versatile, a majority of those artists are musicians, and a great many are composers. Do you know what it is like to be a composer these days, Senator? I know a few composers. Who are still working? Well, three of them. How often do they bring out a new piece? Pause. I, I would say once every five years on average. I never thought of it before, but did you know that at present two out of every five copyright submissions to the music division are rejected on the first computer search? The old man's face had stopped registering surprise other than for histrionic purposes more than a century before. Nonetheless, she knew she had rocked him. No, I did not. Well, why would you know who would talk about it? But it is a fact, nonetheless. Another fact is that when the increase in number of working composers is taken into account, the rate of submissions to the Copyright Office is decreasing significantly. There are more composers than ever, but their individual productivity is declining. Who is the most popular composer alive? I, I suppose that Vishandra fellow. Correct. He has been working for a little over fifty years. If you began now to play every note he ever wrote in succession, you would be done in twelve hours. Wagner wrote well over sixty hours of music. The Ring alone runs twenty-one hours. The Beatles, essentially two composers, produced over twelve hours of original music in less than ten years. Why were the greats of yesteryear so much more prolific? There were more enjoyable permutations of eighty-eight notes for them to find. Oh, my, the senator whispered. Now go back to the 1970s again. Remember the Roots plagiarism case and the dozens like it that followed? Around the same time, a writer named Van Vogt sued the makers of a successful film called Alien for plagiarism of a story 40 years later. Two other writers named Bova and Ellison sued a television studio for stealing a series idea. All three collected. That ended the legal principle that one does not copyright ideas but arrangements of words. The number of word arrangements is infinite, but the number of ideas is much smaller. Certainly they can be retold in endless ways. West Side Story is a brilliant reworking of Romeo and Juliet, but it was only possible because Romeo and Juliet was in the public domain.
Remember, too, that of the finite number of stories that can be told, a certain number will be bad stories. As for visual artists, well, once a man demonstrated in the laboratory an ability to distinguish between 81 distinct shades of color accurately, I think that's an upper limit. There is a maximum amount of information that the eye is capable of absorbing, and much of that will be the equivalent of noise. But, but, this man was reputed never to have hesitated in any way under any circumstances. But, but there'll always be change. There'll always be new discoveries, new horizons, new social attitudes to infuse art with new... Not as fast as artists breed. Do you know about the great split in literature at the beginning of the 20th century? The mainstream essentially abandoned the novel of ideas after Henry James and turned its collective attention to the novel of character. They had sucked that dry by mid-century, and they're still chewing on the pulp today. Meanwhile, a small group of writers, desperate for something new to write about, for a new story to tell, invented a new genre called science fiction. They mined the future for ideas. The infinite future. Like the infinite coal and oil and copper they had then, too. In less than a century, they had mined it out. There hasn't been a genuinely original idea in science fiction in over fifty years. Fantasy has always been touted as the literature of infinite possibility, unquote, but there is even a theoretical upper limit to the meaningfully impossible, and we are fast reaching it. We can create new art forms, he said. People have been trying to create new art forms for a long time, sir. Almost all fell by the wayside. People just didn't like them. We'll learn to like them. Damn it, we'll have to. And they'll help for a while. More new art forms have been born in the last two centuries than in the previous million years, though none in the last fifteen years. Scent symphonies, tactile sculpture, kinetic sculpture, zero-gravity dance, they're all rich new fields, and they are generating mountains of new copyrights, mountains of finite size. The ultimate bottleneck is this. We have only five senses with which to apprehend art, and that is a finite number. Can I have some water, please? Of course. The old man appeared to have regained his usual control, but the glass that emerged from the arm of her chair contained apple juice. She ignored this and continued. But that's not what I'm afraid of, Senator. The theoretical heat death of artistic expression is something we may never really approach, in fact. Long before that point, the game will collapse. She paused to gather her thoughts, sipped her juice. A part of her mind noted that it harmonized with the recurrent cinnamon motif of Bulachevsky's scent symphony, which was still in progress. Artists have been deluding themselves for centuries with the notion that they create. In fact, they do nothing of the sort. They discover. Inherent in the nature of reality are a number of combinations of musical tones that will be perceived as pleasing by a human central nervous system. For millennia we have been discovering them, implicit in the universe, and telling ourselves that we created them. To create implies infinite possibility. To discover implies finite possibility. As a species, I think we will react poorly to having our noses rubbed in the fact that we are discoverers and not creators. She stopped speaking and sat very straight. Unaccountably, her feet hurt. She closed her eyes and continued speaking. My husband wrote a song for me on the occasion of our fortieth wedding anniversary. It was our love in music, unique and special and intimate, the most beautiful melody I have ever heard in my life made him so happy to have written it. Of his last ten compositions, he had burned five for being derivative, and the others had all failed copyright clearance. But this was fresh, special. He joked that my love for him had inspired him. 
The next day he submitted it for clearance and learned that it had been a popular air during his early childhood and had already been unsuccessfully submitted 14 times since its original registration. A week later he burned all his manuscripts and working tapes and killed himself. She was silent for a long time, and the senator did not speak. Ars longa vita brevis est, she said at last. There's been a comfort of a kind in that for thousands of years. But art is long, not infinite. The magic goes away. One day we will use it up, unless we can learn to recycle it like any other finite resource. Her voice gathered strength. Senator, that bill has to fail if I have to take you on to do it. Perhaps I can't win, but I'm going to fight you. A copyright must not be allowed to last more than 50 years, after which it should be flushed from the memory banks of the Copyright Office. We need selective, voluntary amnesia if discoverers of art are to continue to work without psychic damage. Facts should be remembered. But dreams? She shivered. Dreams should be forgotten when we wake, or one day we will find ourselves unable to sleep. Given eight billion artists with effective working lifetimes in excess of a century, we can no longer allow individuals to own their discoveries in perpetuity. We must do it the way the human race did it for a million years, by forgetting and rediscovering. Because one day the infinite number of monkeys will have nothing else to write except the complete works of Shakespeare, and they would probably rather not know that when it happens. Now she was finished. Nothing more to say. So was the scent symphony, whose last motif was fading slowly from the air. No clock ticked, no artifact hummed. The stillness was complete for perhaps half a minute. If you live long enough, the senator said slowly at last, there is nothing new under the sun. He shifted in his great chair. If you're lucky, you'd die sooner than that. I haven't heard a new dirty joke in fifty years. He seemed to sit up straight in his chair. I will kill S4217896. She stiffened in shock. After a time, she slumped slightly and resumed breathing. So many emotions fought for ascendancy that she barely had time to recognize them as they went by. She could not speak. Furthermore, he went on, I will not tell anyone why I am doing it. It will begin the end of my career in public life, which I did not ever plan to leave, but you have convinced me that I must. I am both glad and—his face tightened with pain—and bitterly sorry that you told me why I must. So am I, sir, she said softly, almost inaudibly. He looked at her sharply. Some kinds of fight you can't feel good even if you win them. Only two kinds of people take on fights like that. Fools and remarkable people. I think you are a remarkable person, Mrs. Martin. She stood, knocking over her juice. I wish to God I were a fool, she cried, feeling her control begin to crack at last. Dorothy, he thundered. She flinched as if he had struck her. Sir, she said automatically. Do not go to pieces. That is an order. You're wound up too tight. The pieces might not go back together again. So what? she asked bitterly. He was using the full power of his voice now, the voice which had stopped at least one war. So how many friends do you think a man my age has got, damn it? Do you think minds like yours are common? 
We share this business now, and that makes us friends. You are the first person to come out of that elevator and really surprise me in a quarter of a century. And soon, when the word gets around that I've broken faith, people will stop coming out of the elevator. You think like me, and I can't afford to lose you. He smiled, and the smile seemed to melt decades from his face. Hang on, Dorothy, he said, and we will comfort each other in our terrible knowledge. All right? For several moments, she concentrated exclusively on her breathing, slowing and regularizing it. Then, tentatively, she probed at her emotions. Why, she said wonderingly, it is better, shared. Anything is. She looked at him then, and tried to smile, and finally succeeded. Thank you, Senator. He returned her smile as he wiped all recordings of their conversation. Call me Bob. Yes, Robert. There you go. Don't forget, as you know, copyright Spider Robinson. Well, that is again. It's been a lot of like talky talky on Starship Sofa, and it, you know, it's. I see. I've always wanted to kind of my show to be like the magazine where it's a little bit of this, but there's also the poetry and the, the, the flash fiction things. Eventually, we'll get round to kind of get back up to that. It seems as if we're kind of flattened out, and there's a lot of talky personal things coming into it, and there's probably still will be. Do you know what I mean? I want to do. Hopefully next week, I'll see how it goes, you know. I want to do a show where it's me, Dee, and Josh, and Skeet, if I can, if I can get them all together on the same timeline, and we'll do a show, just the kind of troubles we had, you know, of putting, you know, getting this first volume down. You know, I'm, I swear to God, I'm so proud of it, do you know what I mean? And... It's just to give you that story, that kind of history of how we did it from from other people's point of view as well. Do you know what I mean? It's it would be nice. It's I think this is this in itself, this book is such an achievement for all. You know what I mean? Alex here, bloody cardboard cut out me. Do you know what I mean? But for all of it, the kind of involved in it, it's this will go down in kind of Starship Sofa's history as you know, like kind of one of the big milestones. You know what I mean? And I do honestly, I hope you just get behind it. Get yourselves copies. Get yourselves as many copies as you want. Because this is supporting the show. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's a great thing. There's actually something there now that you can get and you can hold and you can have like a little bit of history with, you know, no more our, the, you know, the kind of MP3 digital downloads that you kind of, I'm now, or we're now kind of a physical entity. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's a great thing. So there you go. Starships of Our Stories, Volume 1. There will be Volume 2. And we've learned a lot of lessons with Volume 1. Do you know what I mean? Give yourself more time. <laughs> Start now for Volume 2. We're thinking, judging by the comments and emails I've got, it's going to be yearly. And I think I might have been kind of pushing myself too much for six monthly. It could be one of those things where, you know, it could be probably achievable. But then... It's the, the momentum, do you know what I mean? And do you burn yourself out as well? You know, and I certainly don't want to do that because like I've, I've had a lot of fun with it, but it's been a, a lot of hard work. So we're probably going to go for yearly for Starships Over Stories. And I definitely still want to kind of, it's this vintage, you know, homage back to kind of science fiction that's getting like a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of stir. We've got mentioned on Boing Boing. We've had some great reviews of the book. And it's like you say, it's 
it's this like harking back to these golden days. Do you know what I mean? It's that's that's what's I think so special about it. And you know, I kind of stop saying look at the cover, but even like the spine of it just looks amazing. Do you know what I mean? If you had that on your your shelves in a you know just the spine showing. So, sorry, apologise. I just still that happiest guy walking around. I swear to God, you know what I mean. So there's going to be volume two. We're going to do it in a kind of year's time. This is the the thing in as well. But we're going to kind of gear up well before that and like start plugging it well before that. But there is going to be a lot more kind of entry levels. You know what I mean? Or not entry levels. More. Or there's going to be a number of different versions. You know, found out that's very popular being able to, at the same time as well, offer different versions, you know, from the very cheap to the very expensive. Do you know what I mean? There's going to be a few more categories in there, you know, and giving other things away and giving different stuff away, you know, with certain issues of the book. That's all I can say up to now, but my eyes are now focused on picking stories for volume two. There you go. So that is Starship Sova's Oral Delights, show number 101. I am just, you know what I mean, I was kind of gobsmacked there, kind of talking about it, but I'm just so appreciative of Larry writing this story and someone's bought that book and it's an amazing thing, you know. What I want to mention as well is a big, big thank you to David Keller. David is a waterboard worker, exactly what I do over in America. And he left, and this is before any of the kind of the book was mentioned, I think, you know, a couple of weeks ago, left an amazing donation. And David, I just want to say thank you so much for that. You know what I mean? My arse was hitting that red. Starships have always seemed to be bouncing, you know, like along the ground. David, you did an amazing thing. Thank you so much for that. If anybody wants to support Starships over a number of years, first one now, buy the book, get the book. There will be paperback, deluxe edition and hardback coming soon. Please support Starships over. If you want, sign up to the sanatorium shows. This is where you'll actually hear a little bit more about the kind of development of the book and my just my thoughts, you know what I mean? And sometimes my thoughts are like at 4.30 in the morning, you know what I mean? That's when I'm recording shows or... Do that, sign up there, or just, you know, donation. Keep it going. There you go. We will be back on track next week. Maybe we will have the talk with Skeet D and Josh. Let us see. I have no idea. But I have one idea. We will be back next week. So until then, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.